Today we start a new series, I'm calling it Attached, and the idea with this series is that God has made every one of us deep in our hearts to yearn to be attached to other people, and so God did not make us to live alone, and so we are a faith family, but we also have families that are blood, but the reality is that our relationships that we have here in the church as believers, are eternal, and even things like our marriages are designed to be temporary, that points to that eternal. But over the next few weeks, we're going to be getting our mind around God's purpose for the family. And so this is going to apply not only to those that are married, even though today, yes, we're talking about marriage, but this applies to everyone. A week from today, we'll be talking about parenting I'm even going to hit some topics like what is manhood, what is womanhood, and in particular, I want to ask the question, what is the purpose for marriage or parenting? What is the purpose in your masculinity or what is the purpose in your femininity? These are questions that if we think about it today, in our world, there is such lack of clarity. There is so much confusion, and even asking the question like, What is the purpose in your masculinity? That in itself is going to already offend people in our world. Even even just asking the question with the assumption that there is purpose in it. And so we need to look at the word and see what does God say about these themes? What does the word have to tell us about how we should think about things like marriage and what is its purpose? purpose. Well, in our desire to have clarity from God's word, I can tell you that in all of these themes, so God's purpose in your manhood or your womanhood, his purpose in your parenting, his purpose in your marriage is the purpose that he has for all of creation, which is the display of his glory. And so marriage exists to display the glory of God, just like your parenting and just like your gender. Everything about our world, everything about who we are by God's design has the purpose of displaying his infinite perfections. Now, we, of course, are are flawed and far from perfect. And yet, through the gospel, through the power of his spirit, as he brings his renewal in our lives, we can then display his infinite perfections, his character, the glory of God, through our lives and our relationships that all of us need to be attached to one another. And so today we're going to begin these concepts, begin this series by looking at God's purpose for marriage. Let's go to the very beginning in Genesis chapter 1. We want to begin where God begins, Genesis 1 verses 26 through 28. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock, over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them, and God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Our Father in heaven, today gathered in your name, as we read your word, we want to just put ourselves under it, under your authority. Your word tells us that you had a plan, that you created us male and female, and you invented 
marriage. This is your idea. This belongs to you, not to us. Since this is part of your story, reflecting your character, we ought not play games with it. We ought not take it lightly. This is yours and about you and your glory, Father. So today, as, as we beg you, Spirit, to be present here and to be heavy here, may we sense your presence upon us and feel you at work, exposing lies and convicting us of your truth and conforming us to the very image of Jesus, our Savior. So we pray for your Spirit to be active here. For the praise of your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. What we see here in Genesis 1 from the very beginning is he creates man and woman, and it says that equally. So he made them equal, and both of them bear his image. So both man and woman are designed to reflect the image of God. That is our purpose. You see this right here in creation. It's defined for us. This is what we exist for, is to enjoy our God's presence. And in that enjoyment, this worship, we then reflect him. We image him. And so you're seeing here in chapter 1 of Genesis, you have a king and a queen. Both of them, side by side, called to have dominion. So to use their image of God to go and create Create what? Create. Create art. Create music. Create language. Invent. Discover. So everything that you see that humanity does, it's, sometimes this is called the cultural mandate. This is just describing how we have a mandate, a calling from God, and everything about who we are as a people falls under this beautiful category being made in God's image And he says, go rule, go be humans under my authority, but go king and queen, Adam and Eve, and rule the world and harness his resources and build cities and and be. And go live in my presence and go expand my glory. And it says multiply. And so have children that will then fill the earth and have more of my glory reflected because that's what humans are, a reflection of the very glory of God. And so we see here Adam and Eve side by side, serving their God, living their purpose together in joy and harmony and peace, shalom, peace with God and with each other. But if you read Genesis chapter 2, it gives more detail. So chapter 1 is the overview, it's the big picture. Chapter 2 goes a little bit deeper to show us how all of it played out. So in chapter 2, it describes that God made Adam first, that Adam was alone. Now, we don't know how long. It doesn't tell us how long Adam was alone. But Adam was indeed without a wife in the garden. And chapter 2 describes that God planted a garden, and there were trees from creation in day 3, but there were no crops because there was no man yet. And so then in day six, God creates man, creates Adam, and God plants the garden. And presumably God teaches Adam how to be a farmer. And so you have something beautiful. Adam is given work to keep the garden. And this is before there was sin. Before all of that, Adam had a job to do, to display God's glory as he worked and as culture would be developed. And yet Adam was alone. Now, he wasn't totally alone. He had God. And so God was walking in the garden with him. He was experiencing joy in God's presence. So he wasn't completely alone, but he didn't have a helper. He has authority. He's naming all the animals. He is learning to grow his own food. So he has a job to do. He has authority and walking with God, but no no helper. In that sense, from a horizontal relationship, he was alone. He had the vertical with God, but he had no horizontal relationships. It was just him. And I think, I think one of the reasons that God allowed this, this is just me just pondering and thinking about it this week, 
It says that God saw that it was not good that Adam would be alone. So God knew that it was incomplete. So God always knew from the very beginning that he would make a woman. But Adam needed to know that. Adam needed to learn that. Adam needed to see what it would be like without a helper, without a partner, to try to do this thing of serving God alone. And and it seems to me, as I read the text, that it was God who knew, but Adam had to also come to that realization that he could not do it alone. So in chapter 2, verses 20 through 25, we see what happened. So Genesis 2, verse 20. The man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. So he's at work. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Do you remember the last time that you gave someone a gift and their face just lit up with excitement? Remember that? Maybe Christmas morning or a birthday or, or a surprise or, or maybe someone that you weren't expecting shows up by surprise and then their face lights up. So Adam here goes to sleep. And then when he wakes up, he like breaks into singing. Like it's one of those, those movies, you know, where they're just talking and then they start singing and it's like, whoa, it's so weird. Like what's going on? Like it's called a musical. I know, guys. And so, yeah, I'm tripping over here. So that's what you see here with Adam. He was asleep. He wakes up. And then you know what happens? He breaks out into song. This is a song. This is a poem that he sings about being so excited to see a woman. I mean, can you imagine? He'd never seen one before. And she was naked. And so I think it's fair to say that he was pretty excited. He was, he was very happy to meet her. But I think what was going on while he was asleep, it's also worth noting. Because while he slept, and God takes out this rib, and he uses a, a part of man, close to the man's heart, to then create a woman. And he creates his daughter. And, and the text doesn't say the exchange between the father and, and his daughter Eve. But I know the heart of God because I've read the Bible. So I can imagine that God was tender and loving with her. I can imagine that, that he put his hands on, on her face and said, I love you and I made you and you're my daughter. And I don't know how long the guy was asleep the text doesn't say, but it was a deep sleep, and it was long enough, I imagine, for God to connect with his daughter and to tell her who she is, and that there's this guy who's asleep over there, and hey, sweetheart, in a few minutes, I'm going to wake him up, and, and he's going to be your husband. And then God wakes Adam up, and then what you have here with, with God is he gives away the first bride. He gives his daughter to a man. And, and what he says, essentially, I, I can imagine, the text doesn't say this, but I think the heart of this is God goes to Eve, or rather has Eve, and he gives her to Adam and says something along the lines of, Adam, this is your wife to have and to hold from this day forward, for better or for worse, till death separates you. 
pledge yourself to her. He gives Adam his little girl. I mean, my, my girl is 12, and so, and I can't even imagine what that's going to be like one day. The absolute excitement and yet heartbreak that it's going to be to give Abby over to her, her godly man that I'm going to love, and I have faith that he's going to treasure my little girl. And this is what God does with Adam, and he is to love her. When you enter into marriage, you have to know what you've entered into. You're entering into a sacred space that is so much bigger than than you or me. It's bigger than you or even your love for your wife or for your husband. It's something that points to eternal and glorious realities. Your marriage points to God's eternal purpose. Marriage is meant to bring you great joy, but also, and more importantly, to bring God great glory. So Adam wakes up from his sleep. He sees Eve, and it says they're both naked and not ashamed. That is huge. No shame, no pain, no secrets, no betrayal. Just completely laid bare, completely exposed, and completely trusted, and completely safe. Because you cannot have intimacy if there's fear of rejection. You can't be naked and unashamed if you don't trust that person. It goes hand in hand. So being accepted and not rejected is what you're seeing here with this first marriage, naked and not ashamed. And it describes in verse 24 as they were a one flesh union. And this song that Adam breaks out into as inspired by the Holy Spirit, Adam sings about the mystery and the the wonder That marriage is, that we become a one flesh union. And so you come together, we're two now come together and become one. And so two souls that were separate become joined and intermingle with each other in ways that again is mysterious that our minds can't fully comprehend and that are true. It's describing intimacy at a very deep level. And so you see at the very beginning with this Adam and Eve, this king and queen, the first humans, you see a partnership. God blessed them both and called to them both side by side to have dominion over the world. And as they enjoyed each other, they would be then displaying the very love that God has for his displaying our ultimate purpose. So God's purpose for marriage is to display his character, his glory, his love for his people. Now we know the rest of the story in Genesis chapter 3, that now marriage is broken because our world is broken. In chapter 3 of Genesis, you had our father and mother, Adam and Eve, rebelled against God. They soiled this sacred space. They gave over their ruling authority to the serpent, whose kingdom of death and darkness is very evident all around us. The divorce rate says it all. We have given over our rightful ruling authority to the God of this age, the serpent who is currently at work in the sons of disobedience, which is every human being who has not been made new in Jesus. And so our marriages are marked by struggle because we are corrupted. And Genesis 3 describes that we are under the curse of sin. And so rather than displaying the glory of God with our marriages, we distort the glory of God in our marriages. 
And I have a lot to share with you for the next several minutes. But I want you to know that I'm sharing it as a fellow struggler who's been married for 19 years. And I can tell you that many of those years, I did not do this well. I didn't. Now, anyone who would have seen me from the outside would have thought, oh, Matthew and Bonnie, they have an amazing marriage. They have this incredible thing going on where they're this power couple where they go to seminary and then he's a he's associate pastor at a very large church in West Texas and then they go to the Middle East and they're missionaries and planting churches you know, in the Muslim context and then they come here into planting a church and they're adopting babies from Africa and it's like, dude, like that couple's got it all together. No, we haven't. No, we haven't. We've had more struggle than success, I think, when I look back at the number of years, and I can tell you that God is still showing me, and I'm still learning. And even this week, in preparing to to share God's word with my beloved faith family, it has still been just the enemy's slander and accusation and reminding me of the past and who I used to be and having to fight those lies with truth and, and saying, no, I am a man of God and far from perfect but redeemed by the blood of Jesus. And so what I'm going to share with you, I shared not from a place of arrogance or being haughty, but purely as a fellow man who wants to encourage my my brothers to be the men God's called you to be, and then to my sisters to be the biggest encouragers you could possibly be to your husbands. And if you're here and you're not married, then I would pray that as we look at this text in Ephesians 5 in just a few moments, that you would be looking, if you're a woman and you're not married, that you'd be looking for the kind of man described in Ephesians 5. And if you are a woman here and you're not married, that, or rather a man and you're not married, that you would then use this to challenge yourself to grow, to become that kind of man that would be worthy of a bride, to hold and to cherish until death separates you because God has a plan to redeem marriage. He has a plan and there is hope for your marriage primarily because of what it points to, which is the very love that Jesus has in sacrificing himself to rescue a people from darkness, to free them from the chains, from the darkness of Satan's domain and to bring them into his glorious light. And that is what God is doing. So let's read Ephesians chapter 5 and God's plan to redeem marriage and have our hearts filled with hope because there is hope for your marriage and yet also by the Spirit of God have a resolve to be the husband and wives that God is calling us to be. Ephesians five twenty-two through 33. Wives, submit to your own husband's As to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. So the wives get three verses. So God gives the wives that short paragraph. Now, the rest is for the husbands. Verse 25, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. And gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. Because we are members of his body, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Amen. So marriage points 
to the gospel. That's what marriage does. Marriage is designed to be a mirror, a display of the very love that God has for his people, Christ sacrificing himself for the church to save you and me. And so your marriage is not about you. Your marriage is not primarily about anything to do with your agenda. I love this book by Gary Thomas called Sacred Marriage. The, the subtitle when I first read it was like, oh, that's good. What if God made marriage to make you holy and not happy? He's on to something. The point of your marriage is to display who God is to show Christ's sacrificial love for his people. And he talks to both husbands and wives. Now, he does begin by talking to the wives, but I'm going to begin talking to the men first. So I'm going to skip over and begin with verse 25. And the reason why I'm doing that is because it has words like submit or subject. And a lot of times we don't know what those words mean. We, we think that we do. And a whole lot of evil has been done to women and abuse and control and manipulation because of these verses. And I want to make sure that when we read and really look at the verses to wives, that we have a very clear context of what exactly God is talking about when he says that the husband is the head of the wife. And so we will get to the section on wives, but first I want to speak to my fellow brothers, to the men in the room. God's role for men in marriage. And I'm going to go through this. And I tried to have as few as I could, but the best I could do was six. So I have six words for a guy. So you're like, oh, that's way too many. I can only handle three points. Well, I'm really sorry. These are going to be brief, but I'm following the text. So I would encourage you to take notes. And if you're like, I didn't bring a pen, that's okay. You have a phone. And I'm pretty sure your phone has a note-taking application in it. So I would encourage you to use it. Particularly if it's in your phone, you can refer back to it regularly. And I would encourage you to do so. Ephesians 5, verse 25, the first word here that defines your role as a husband is cherish. Because it says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. And so there's this cherishing, a deep loving. And so the first word here is cherish. And here's why I use the word cherish, because it has to do with like treasure. And so your wife is a treasure. She's not a pain or a nuisance. She's a treasure. She's a gift. She's not a nag. She's a gift given to you from the hand of God himself. Like God the Father bringing Eve to Adam. He brought that woman sitting next to you. He brought her to you. She is a love gift from God. Jesus loves his bride. He loves the church. John chapter 10. You don't have to read it, but I'll tell you about it. If you want to read it later, you can. John chapter 10, Jesus talks about being the good shepherd, how he lays his life down to save his sheep. And in John 10, he says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and they know me. So he says, they hear my voice and they come. So Jesus here is saying that he knows his people, husbands. Do you really know your wife? I know she's always late when we're trying to get out of of the house. Or I know she forgets to put gas in the car. No, that's not what I mean. I know she reminds me when I forgot to fix the toilet. No, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm saying, do you know Let me give you a secret, men. If you want your wife to have her heart explode with affection for you, where she will just feel 
Like, you really love her, really cherish her. You know what she wants? She wants you to know her. Amen, ladies? Know her. Her dreams, her hopes, her fears, her insecurities, her struggles, entering into who she is at her deepest self. I mean, most guys, and I get it, I have four kids, one in high school, one in middle school, and two kindergartners. So I've got the whole spectrum there in my house. And life can be so full that if we're not careful, we can look at our wives as nothing more than the housekeeper, maybe the homeschool teacher, the cook, And our entire interaction with our wives ends up simply being scheduling and logistics and everything about kids, especially if you have little ones. But your wife yearns to be known. Do you really know her? And particularly if you have small children, outside of the context of mother. Do you really know her, what she's about? And we can talk about the love languages, but let me ask you this. How would you even apply her love language if it didn't have to do with housework or watching kids? So I'm not talking about washing dishes because you should be doing that anyway, husbands, because you live there too. Like, and, and it's sidebar, let me just get off for tangent just for a second. Um, don't ever talk about babysitting your own kids. That's for next week. We'll talk about parenting. And don't talk about helping your wife or y'all need to help your mother. No, you're not helping her. It's as much your job as hers. Did you eat from the same plate? You ate from the same dishes that were used, the same pots. Why can't you wash them? Who? The roles in the Bible are not exclusively what we would think of as as modern husband-wife roles. It's spiritual leadership. And so we should be serving just because we live there too and we love our wives. But the point I'm trying to make here is do you actually know who she is, the real her outside of her role as a mother? Because you should value your wife not for what she does for you, but value your wife for who she is is. Yeah, she gives you clean clothes and great meals and a clean house. It's so stereotypical, but whatever. But do you value, treasure her? Jesus loved the church. We're to love our wives. Know her. Knowing her is loving her. Second key word is sacrifice. Same verse, verse 25, as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And so husbands are called to cherish, but then to second, sacrifice. Because we mirror what Jesus did. And so we are just like Jesus sacrificed to save us. Husbands should sacrifice for their wives. Get our hands dirty in the family. So many husbands just leave it to the wives to just figure it out. Just like Adam left it to his wife to figure it out with the serpent. And that did not end well. There are way too many passive and checked out husbands that are not willing to sacrifice anything for their wives. When was the last time that you gave up something that you wanted to do and you joyfully gave it up? where you sacrificed, and you did it. It was your idea, and you smiled, and you were happy to do it. Where you said, I'm going to give you a non-sexual massage. Maybe even her feet. When was the last time that you said, hey, honey, I will watch the children. I will get them in bed. I'll read to them. I'll do that. You go take a bath. Or, you know what, I'll take care of this. You call a couple of girlfriends and go watch a movie. Or take the whole Saturday. I'll give up golfing because I value you so much more than golf. And so 
or you put down the remote and turn off the TV or watch less football on the weekend. I like football too, but I'm just saying. Turn off the game and connect with your wife. When was the last time that you actually sacrificed, gave up something that you wanted, and you gave it up willingly, gladly for your girl? Because you just treasure her. Talking about sacrifice. Putting your desires on hold to serve her with no ulterior motive or nothing in return from her, just because you treasure her, you want to sacrifice for her. Number three, the next key word, verse 26, is word, so as in God's word, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. And so we're sanctified and presented holy because of what Jesus did and because of his word. And so husbands, you should be focused on the word in your house. And so You're called to spiritually lead your home. Jesus leads the church. Husbands lead your families. When was the last time that you actually used the word and led spiritually in your home? Next word, integrity. Verse 27, so that he might present the church himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. How can you lead your wife in integrity and in holiness, like we're seeing here, if you are not a man of integrity yourself? You can't. You can't lead where you haven't been. You can't. Think about it. If you want to go on a safari in, I don't know, say in Kenya, and then all of a sudden you kind of get off the path and you're like, whoa, Are you sure that this guy knows what's up? And the guide who is leading your safari says, huh, I've never been here before. No, thank you. If someone's going to guide me into the wilderness, they better know the territory. I'm trusting them to lead me. They need to know where we're going. You can't lead if you've never been there. And so the, the key here is with, because What Jesus does with us, and he presents us as holy, this is your role as a husband to lead with integrity in your home. The next word is intentional. Verses 28 through 30 describes, in the same way husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. So he says, nourishes and cherishes. And so these words of nourishing and and cherishing and unintentionally loving and caring for your wife. You know the word husband means farmer? Did you know that? Ever heard of the word husbandry? Husbandry refers to what? Agriculture. It refers to the care and the development and the harvesting of crops. And so husbandry refers to agriculture. So the word husband is borrowed from the agricultural world, which is why you see here language like nourishing and cherishing. So as a husband, your role is to husband. The husbandry is to nurture, to cherish, to lead your wife where she feels loved and filled with hope. Man, we should be our wives like dream makers. And say, I want you to reach your full potential because you are such a treasure. What can I do? What can I sacrifice? And intentionally thinking about how you can actually connect with your wife and to nurture and nourish her. And the last word here, number six, is pursuit. You need to pursue your wife. Verse 31 says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and he shall become one flesh. This leave, hold fast, This is movement, actively pursuing. You are not to be passive. You're to be emotionally engaged, not emotionally distant from your wife. Actually, intentionally, 
on purpose, thinking about it, how you're going to do it, pursue her. And when I say pursue, I don't just mean pursue her body. I mean pursue her mind and pursue her heart. Because this idea, this mystery of being one flesh describes intimacy. Souls intermingled. And so it's emotional and mental and spiritual. Yes, also physical Intimacy, all of this together, holistically pursuing her. Let me ask you this question, and then we'll move on to talk to our wives. What are you learning from your wife? So I could ask it this way, is how has the Spirit of God convicted you and transformed you and left you changed? You're now a different person because of the influence of your wife. Because this level of intimacy, she ought to be a huge force of transformation by God's grace in your life. And if you can't name one thing that you are learning, that God has shown you through your wife, then you are not pursuing. Because I have learned so much from women in this room. I'm not even married to them. I'm not married to you, and you've taught me. I've learned so much. I imagine if I live with you, it'd be different. I get it. It's more intimate when you're married. But that should be even more intense, where you learn even more. But this requires intentionality and pursuit. Let's talk to our sisters in the room, verses 22 through 24. I'm going to be very brief, and honestly, the reason why is that there's a lot more with the guys. God gave men a lot more in this text. That was not my idea. This is, I just delivered the mail. I don't write the mail. I will have a whole sermon in a few weeks on womanhood, and so we'll talk to the women the whole time in the room in a few weeks. But this is hard. Let's just be very clear. We read it a little while ago. Verse 22 says, Submit to your husbands as to the Lord. Your husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. So let me give you two words. Wives only get two, not six. Two words from this text. One is respect and follow. Wives are called to respect their husbands and to follow their leadership. And so submission here is describing an attitude of respect. Submission here. It, now, don't, don't picture the octagon, you know, MMA, you know, UFC, where you have two grapplers and they're using their jiu-jitsu ground game and trying to get an arm bar and, and, and get a tap out. And so a lot of people think of themselves as though husband and wife are in the octagon and they're, and they're looking for position and they're going to strike each other and I'm going to submit her. That's not what the text says. It doesn't say, husbands, keep your wives under control. It doesn't say that. It doesn't say, husbands, submit your wives. It doesn't say that. It speaks to the wife. And it says, daughter, the boss is Jesus. He saved you. He's the king. He's the authority. But there's a mystery here where your husband is a spiritual covering over you. And he's going to lead you and sacrifice for you. He's going to cherish you. He's going to learn from you. And his role is to lead you. So your role is to, to submit, to follow with respect. Follow him. Just like you trust God and you trust Jesus. You're called to trust your husband. You're called to respect him. 
if you want the key to your husband's heart, you're like, oh, I can never get in. It's like it's locked up. And, and I want to connect with him so bad. I want his heart. Ladies, let me give you the secret. Respect him. Respect him. Men need to be, by God's design, need to be respected. When you honor him, what that does is it inspires him to be that man that he needs to be that you want him to be, who will sacrificially lead you and not be domineering, but lead you and your home, your children, spiritually, sacrificially, the way Jesus leads the church. So your role is to be the helper, to honor him, to help lift him up. And what this does is it unlocks the key for your heart, where if your husband is loving you and you respect him, then you're both going to experience what you both want, which is intimacy in your marriage. And the last verse in this section summarizes it. Husbands, he says, so each one of you love your wife, wife respect her husband. And so those are the two key words, if you want it in summary form. Wives, respect your husband. Husbands, love your wives as Jesus loves the church. Um, I have a few images that I want to share with you, some illustrations on the screens. I won't take too long, but I think this might be helpful to get our minds around what this is. And then we're going to respond to our God and that he would make our marriage what he wants them to be. The first illustration here is a picture in the garden of God with man, with Adam, before there was anything else. She's God and Adam You see an arrow, it indicates relationship that goes both ways. God talks to Adam, Adam talks to God. God is above Adam. Adam is under God's authority, and he is in this circle, in this sacred space is where he is, but he's alone. And so the next image describes how God made a woman, and he brought a woman into that same sacred space. Now, you do see that God is directly above man. And the reason why is in Genesis 1 and 2, you see God spoke to Adam. You you don't see it recorded where he spoke to Eve. You see other texts in the New Testament where wives learn from their husbands. And so there's a lot going on here. And we'll talk about that more with manhood and womanhood in the next few weeks. But we do see that God did speak directly to Adam. And Adam does have leadership. And so Adam, even in the garden, as we just read right here, Adam is the spiritual leader over Eve. Now, granted, they're side by side, and so they also have an arrow between them indicating a relationship. And so woman is not beneath man. Woman is right next to him. God blessed both of them, and God told both of them have dominion. So they're in the same sacred space, and yet in this mystery, man does have leadership. And he is called to do what? To sacrifice, to love, and to lead. And the woman is called to help and to respect and to follow as side by side they fulfill God's calling. Now the next screen has another arrow because it's not as a woman doesn't have a direct line to God. Women absolutely can connect with God. And you do see that many times in the Bible that God interacts with women one-on-one. So, now, by the way, images like these, let's just be clear. Let's just understand something. It's just an image. I just drew it on the paper, and and then we put it on the screens, all right? So, I'm not trying to make something concrete that is mysterious, and there is mystery in here. So, let's just not press the picture too far. With that disclaimer said, there is a mystery here of how you see that woman absolutely relates to God directly, and yet... There is another reality of where husband is a spiritual covering and leads her. And blessings flow when God directly speaks to men and then men lovingly, sacrificially lead their women. Next image, we see the reality of our world that is broken. This tends to be what we see today, which is 
God in man, you see now it's a broken arrow, so broken relationships. And then man actually sees himself, husbands, as though they're above women. And women are made to feel like they're beneath men, and they are not. Women do not belong at the feet of men. If you look in Genesis chapter 3, when there was the curse over sin, what you see, it says in Genesis 3.16, God tells Eve, your desire will be for your husband. So you will desire him and he will rule over you. Now, the previous chapter, God told them, rule together. Have dominion, both of you. Male leadership, but together, side by side, king and queen. And then the next chapter, because of sin, now what's happening? Husbands are ruling over their wives. This is a domineering, oppressive, abusive ruling that we see so often in our world today, where women are made to feel like they're beneath men, and that is not where they belong. They do not belong there. They belong right next to their man. Yes, under his spiritual leadership and covering, but right next to him, not under him with broken relationship, where he fails to sacrifice for her and where husbands fail to love and fail to lead and we're passive and we don't do it and women fail to help and fail to respect and and fail to follow and it's all messed up. That's our world today. This is a picture of marriage today, but the next screen shows that there is hope and his name is Jesus. The new Adam the head of a new humanity who loves his bride and will never leave her. Jesus, who makes us new and gives us hope, who came into this world. And the next screen shows the gospel. Jesus, who prays to the Father, your will be done, not mine, under God's authority, brings his bride right next to her and says that we are co-heirs with Christ. Relationship. And Jesus leads us sacrificially, and yet we trust and we follow Jesus. And so marriage, last image, this is what it should look like. A husband sacrificially loving and leading and a wife respectfully helping and following under God side by side for the glory of God. This is God's design for us. Godly leadership is both being strong and gentle. Oftentimes we think as men that leading needs to be domineering or oppressive, and it's not. We can be like Jesus. We can lead with gentleness and yet be strong as we lead. Leadership also sometimes means knowing when you need to defer to your wife. She might know more than you do about finances. Okay, let her manage your accounts. It might mean that your wife knows about other things that you don't, and so you defer to her. That's still leading well. Decision-making should be side by side. Yes, husbands are absolutely called to lead, and we need men that will take up their responsibility and lead their wives as we've seen this morning. The wives need to honor and respect their husbands. 